So we're getting now into the, the heart of the Exodus. And for those who are visitors, what we've been doing is we're going on a journey right through the Old Testament. Our series is called A Blazing Grace, Another Look at the Old Testament Story. And what we're doing, we're revisiting some of the epic Old Testament stories and we're saying, asking questions like, where do we see Jesus in these stories? Where do we see the lessons in these stories that are relevant to our lives? And so today, I think we have one of the, possibly one of the most epic of stories, the Red Sea. Now, all of us, as we journey through life, we encounter obstacles, we encounter difficulties, we encounter um, challenges. However, I don't think any of us have challenges that are quite to the extent of what we're going to see today. And as we go through this, uh, what, I want to, what I want us to do is really to view this story through the lens of our own situations, the own circumstances that we find in our, in our lives, and ask ourselves, how do these lessons apply to the specific challenges, the specific obstacles um, that I find myself in, that we find ourselves in, um, in this part of our lives. And as we go through, we're going to be asking this question. What would happen if we asked what we should do instead of what we could do? Okay, I'll say it one more time. What would happen if we asked what we should do instead of what we could do? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. So we've had the plagues, we've had the blood, we've had the hail, we've had the livestock die, we've had the, eventually the, the darkness and the firstborn was of, of Egypt was killed, all of those who did not have the blood on their doorposts like we talked about last week. And, and at the end of this, Pharaoh who had been so stubborn, so reluctant to let the Israelites go, eventually he's broken and he says, all right, you guys can go. And as he gives them that allowance to leave Egypt, the Israelites to leave Egypt, um, all the rest of the Egyptians, they're not just like, okay, you can go, but they're urging them, get out of here, get out of our country, we don't want you here. Because if you stay here, then we're going to die with all these plagues, these plagues keep on happening. And so the Israelites begin their journey out of Egypt. And we pick the story up in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 17. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, though that was near. For God said, let, Lest they, the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So here we see the Israelites, they're armed and they're ready for battle. And with them, what are they carrying? The mummified body of Joseph. Now remember, it would have been just like, what we see in the pictures of the mummies from Egypt, because he was embalmed at the end of his life, and he gave them the strict instructions, don't just leave me buried in a, in a tomb here in Egypt, but take me to the promised land, the land that 
from the covenant that God has given us, the promised land, leave my, take my body to there. And so as they were leaving, I just imagined the excitement and their hearts would have been, would have been thrilled with the, with, the, with the thought of freedom, of new hope, of, of taking, going to this promised land that God had promised them. However, as they left, God gave, as he was leading them, he didn't want to lead them through the land of the Philistines. He didn't want to lead them on the direct route to, to, the, um, to the promised land, but instead, he sent them off into the wilderness. We come along to chapter 14, start in verse, in verse 1. So the Israelites are off wandering in the seemingly wrong direction from where they would expect God to be leading them. And suddenly God has a bit of a change of mind. Chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back. Now, they've only just, they've only just left. Now God is saying, turn back. Turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. So God says, all right, you've been heading off in this strange direction. Now, how about you go and just pitch your tents right next to the Red Sea? Verse 3, for Pharaoh, will say in his, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. So what God is doing, is here, doing here is he's getting them to do this, all these really unusual things, these surprising things, with the aim that Pharaoh will suddenly think, oh, hang on, these Egyptians look pretty confused. What are they doing? Maybe they're not so far gone after all. Verse 5 says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards his people, and they said, What is this we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. Now, the way I sort of imagine this taking place is, the Pharaoh, he recovers, first day passes, second day passes, he finishes, I guess, the initial shock of his, of his son dying, and he starts looking around Egypt, and it's in ruins. There's been the hail, there's just so many things have gone wrong with the place, and he's thinking, all right, now we need to rebuild. And he looks around for all those slaves that used to build everything, and he goes, oh, hang on. We actually really need those slaves. And so he has a change of mind. God had the change of mind where he's going, although God already always knew what his original, what his plan would be. But here Pharaoh's like, hang on, we really need those people. Verse 6, So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. So here we see the Israelites being defiant against Egypt by by leaving, but we see um, Pharaoh being defiant against the God of the, of, the, of the Israelites, and suddenly he musters up the full army of Egypt, and they're going back to go and recapture their slaves, to bring them back and get them to rebuild what has been destroyed. Verse 10, it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. You can just imagine suddenly the hearts of these Egyptians suddenly sinking. sinking. There they were, they were, they were filled with hope, the, the thoughts of freedom, 
And only a few days into their journey, suddenly they realize that they've been overtaken by the, the great armies of, of Egypt, and they're camped there with the Red Sea on one side, and then on the other side, the Egyptian armies closing in on them, and they start to freak out. And they race to, to Moses, and they, and they say to Moses, verse 11, They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Things suddenly have turned around pretty quickly. A few days into into the journey, suddenly they think, we're going to die. Now, as the Israelites were there and they were examining their options, they're looking at all the things that they could do. They look at it and they think, oh, could we keep walking? Well, there's a great big Red Sea before you. Could we run and flee? Well, the Egyptians are on, in chariots. We're on, on foot. That's not going to work. Could we fight the Egyptians? Probably they could have a go. They're armed for war, but they know that they are completely outclassed. These are trained soldiers coming after them. What are they trained in? Um, baking bricks? They're not, and if they, if they thought they could overtake the Egyptians, they would have left years ago. So, so walking away is not, a, not an option. Running away is not an op- option. Fighting their way through is not an option. And they look around and they realize that there are no options. They look around... And the only thing that they, they know that they can do is freak out. And they freak out, Moses, why have you brought us here? Have you brought us here to die in the wilderness? Was there not enough room in the cemetery in Egypt that you needed to bring us here into the wilderness where there's more room for us to die? Is basically what they are saying. And as we, as we think here of these, of these Israelites trapped here between a rock and a hard place, between a Red Sea and an Egyptian army, I want us to take our minds to, remember I said, what is the situation, what is the difficulty, what is the challenge, what is the obstacle that faces you in your life? What is your Red Sea and what is your Egyptian army? And so they're desperate for solutions, but what they're focusing on is what could we do? What can we do? But what happens when the best that we can do isn't enough. And I think throughout our life, often we, are, we ask this question, what could we do? We think, we get to the end of high school and we think, oh, what could we do with our life? And we start going through all the list of options. If we get into a situation, we say, what could we do with this? We get money in the bank. What could we do with our money? But could it be that what could we do is actually the wrong question? And as I said at the beginning, the question that we're looking at is, what would happen if we asked what we should do instead of what we could do? But what's the difference between these two things? I'd like to suggest that one of the big differences is that what we should do brings God into the equation. And let me show how 
this takes place. What we could do draws upon these things. It, draws, it looks to our abilities. It looks to our resources. It looks to what we think is best. Whereas what we should do looks to God's abilities. It looks to God's resources. And it looks to what God knows is, is best. For the person who's wanting to ask the question, what we should do, the supreme priority of this person is to follow God's path. So what would happen if we asked what we, would do, what we should do instead of what we could do? And what would it take to be this sort of a person who asks these questions in our life? And there's four things that I think that to ask what we should do requires. And the very first one of those is focus. When they ended up in this situation where they had the Egyptians coming from behind them, the Red Sea in front of them, totally surrounded, what were they focusing on? They were focusing on themselves, they were focusing on the problem. What weren't they focusing on? They weren't focusing on that great big pillar of fire and that big pillar of cloud that was before them. Let me remind you how they got into this situation at first. Let's jump back to Exodus chapter 13 and verse 21. Now I skipped over this passage as we read through. Exodus 13 verse 21 and 22. And it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Their task was to follow this pillar that was before them and to have, I like what Jenny said in the children's story, God blinkers. Keep your focus on the pillar before you. But who was the God that was in the pillar before them? Had God appeared to them in the midst of fire before? We cast our minds back to the beginning of the Exodus and we see that Moses, when he first encountered this task that he was given, God showed up to him in what way? In the burning bush. And when God showed up to Moses in the burning bush and said, go to Pharaoh and tell tell him to let my people go, what name did God give himself? When Moses said, who should I say sent me? I am who I am. Go and tell them that I am has sent you. So the God in the pillar is the same God that was in the bush, which is the I am God. But who is the I am God? If we jump to the New Testament, we get a little bit of a clue. Jesus is speaking to some of the the Jewish leaders, and they're getting this really heated debate, this really heated argument. And at the end of it, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, He saw it and was glad. In other words, Abraham, that guy from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, he saw my day. And the the, the Jewish leaders look at him and they say, "Um." So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? But Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, it's easy to miss off if we don't understand the Jewish picture of God that they had, but for the Jews, 
The God who delivered them from Egypt was the great I am God. And here Jesus is laying, laying claim to that, that that great I am God is himself. And they knew it, so they picked up stones and they threw it to throw at him. They wanted to kill him. How dare this person claim to be this God? And so what we see is that this pillar of fire, this pillar of cloud that went before them was the great I am God. It was Jesus himself. And we see this as well in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 311. It says, During all the wanderings of Israel, Christ, in the pillar of cloud and of fire, was their leader. In order to ask the question, what, to look at what we should do instead of what we could do, the first task for them was to keep their focus upon Jesus, who was leading their way. And if they kept their focus on Jesus, they would know the way that they would do. But instead, their focus slips and it focuses on the problem as opposed to the one who has every solution. The first, so that's focus. So to ask what we should do requires focus. The second thing it requires is fearfulness. Okay, you might be thinking, Jared, why did you put fearfulness up there? And why do you think God showed up in a pillar of fire? I mean, there's many ways that God should have, could have revealed himself to Israel, but he chose to reveal himself through a blazing fire. And in a moment, we're going to see that this fire is enough to stand between the Egyptian, entire Egyptian army and stop them from going through. So this wasn't just some little campfire. This was like a gigantic mammoth pillar of fire that went before them. What was God trying, what was the lesson, what was the lesson that God was trying to reveal to Israel in this? What about the plagues when he went through and they had the, the huge swarms of locusts come through and they had the thick darkness when they had the blood, they had all these other incredible miracles take place. What was the lesson that God was trying to get across? I believe God was trying to communicate to them that they need to be people who have fearfulness. They need to be people who fear God. And what does it mean to fear God? Often this is a really hard concept for us to wrap our minds around. What does it mean to fear God? And I, The way I best understand it is to fear God means to have a healthy sense of God's power, God's position, and God's preeminence. It's understanding who God is and understanding who we are. It's understanding that, that God is, is the creator God. He's the one who spoke things into existence. He's the one who's the king of the universe. And what are we? We're just dust. Our lives are short, and our very life, our very existence is in the hands of God, is dependent upon God. To fear God is to be awestruck, is to be absolutely moved by the incredible, overwhelming, overpowering presence and power and glory of God. And God was trying to teach them this lesson. And the result of fear, when we get a healthy fear of God, when we, when we understand who God is and we compare it into who we are and we realize that we are nothing in comparison, what it should do is it should make us drop to our knees in humility, in submission, and in willingness to do whatever that God tells us to do. Because who are we to stand up against the Creator God? Some examples of people who have this experience, I think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. 
he was given a vision of the glory of God. And in response, he says, Then I said, Here I am. Send me. We think of Mary after she was um, just given, told that she had the task of giving birth to the Messiah. And that would have been a very overwhelming task. But she was someone who feared God. She had a healthy understanding of the, of the magnitude of God. And Mary said, Behold, and I love this answer. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I think it's one of the great answers that's ever given in, in, in Scripture. It's, it's, it's an answer of submission and humility and a willingness to ask God, what should I do? Oops, got a bit of a... Okay, we're switched. Okay, is that working better? Okay. Okay, we'll try and juggle all these things now. So what we're looking at is the result of having a healthy fear. And this verse which we're going to look at now is a, per- is a group of people who I think they didn't have this healthy fear of God. And this, in Jeremiah, we find that um, the Babylonians have come and they've taken... They've taken the Israelites in, in, in Jerusalem captive. And after they've taken them captive, um, there's a group of people left behind, the, the remnant who is left behind. And they go up to Jeremiah and they ask him the same question that we're looking at today, which is why I brought it up here is on the screen. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. Okay? And as a result... Jeremiah says, sure, and he goes away and he prays to God, he inquires of God, and God brings back the answer to him, and he says, whatever you do, just don't, don't go down to the Egyptians. Don't go back down to Egypt. And it says that when Jeremiah had finished telling the people all the words of the Lord their God, everything the Lord ha- had sent to tell them, all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you are lying The Lord our God has not sent you to say you must go to Egypt to settle there. What sort of result did they have when they were faced with what they should do? They rejected it. There was no submission. There was no humility to follow in God's God's leading. And and I think one of the big parts is because they didn't have this, this fear of God that made them recognize who they were in comparison to who God is in, in their life. working how to carry all these things at once. Uh, okay, we're at... okay, point number three. The third thing that it requires is firstly focus, fearfulness, and then fearlessness. Now you might be thinking, Jared, isn't that a complete contradiction to what you just said? And I guess in some ways it is. But something that you'll notice as you read through the Bible is there's two commands that, uh, that occur over and over and over and over again throughout the Bible. The first one is, fear God. And the other one is, fear not. Which is kind of interesting that these are two of God's um, most frequent commands. And we see this, for example, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, after God has just again appeared in a blaze of fire and thunder upon Mount Sinai, which we're going to be hearing about in 
two weeks' time, I think it is. It says, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Is that a bit of a conflicting verse there? God comes and he says, Don't fear, because God has come to teach you to fear. How do we reconcile these two things? And I think one of the ways, when we go back to our main text, I go back to Exodus chapter um, 14, and it's going to reveal to us how these two things, the fear of God and the, and the fearlessness that comes as a result of fearing God, how these two things co- go together. Okay, let's go to Exodus 14, verse 11 through to 14. It says, so this is, this is the, the situation that the Egyptians brought to Moses when they were trapped by the armies and the Red Sea. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So that's what they bring to Moses. Now notice what Moses says in response. And I think this is probably the most powerful two verses in this whole chapter. So pay close attention to the, this is a power-packed couple of verses here. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Some of your versions might say you have only to be still. But what an incredible picture that we can... Moses there, he is in the same situation. But Moses' response is, fear not, stand firm, be silent. That doesn't sound like a very satisfactory solution to the great challenge that lies before them. Now, in this passage, there's two words that are said twice, which I think give the reason why fearfulness leads to fearlessness. And the two words are for you. The first time it comes up in verse 13, it says, And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The second one is when we get down to verse 14, it says, The Lord will fight for you. And the reason these two things go together is that when we understand the God of the universe, this awesome, powerful, majestic, glorious God of the universe, we are initially filled with fear, but when we realize that that God is on our side, that that God works for us, that God God fights for us, then suddenly fearfulness turns into fearlessness. So that's our third point there. To us, we should do fearfulness, focus, fearfulness, and thirdly, fearlessness. Now, the final one is faith. To us, what we should do requires faith. And the reason that it requires faith is because when God leads us, and we find this in, the, in this situation here and in our lives as well, often God leads us in part, partly in ways that are very clear and partly in ways that are very unclear and often at the exact same time. Have you ever experienced that in your life? There's some things that God is leading that is 
I'm completely sure that this is where God wants me to go. But God has revealed absolutely nothing about how that is actually going to take place. And we see that with the Israelites. They're leaving um, Egypt, and it is very clear. There is a massive pillar of fire that's going before them. It's very clear where God is leading them. There's no doubt. All they need to do is follow that pillar. But is God clear about where he's leading them? Is God clear about how he's leading them? About how he's going to get them out of this situation? And so we see clearly, we see that God is both very clear and very unclear. I believe God does that on purpose. And the result is that following God in the midst of clearness and very unclearness requires an incredible amount of faith. Faith follows what is clear regardless of what is unclear. And I love this quote from Patriarchs and Prophets. It says, Those who defer obedience till every shadow of uncertainty disappears and there remains no risk of failure or defeat will never obey at all. Unbelief whispers, let us wait till the obstructions are removed and we can see our way clearly. But faith courageously urges in advance, hoping all things and believing all things. The journey is always going to be mixed with clarity and fuzziness. But faith takes hold of the clarity and sets forward into the fuzziness. And so Moses is there. And he knows that God has led him to that point. Moses knows that God has led them. They've followed the cloud and they're here by he was They followed his instruction to camp by the Red Sea. And if God has led them there, God is going to lead them out of there. And so Moses takes faith and he says, Fear not, take your stand, be silent, trust in God. And as a result of Moses giving this to the people, suddenly they all stop, stop focusing on, what we can do, and they start looking towards what does God want us to do. Let's find out what happens when God reveals what he wants them to do. And we pick it up in verse 15. So chapter 14, verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. If that is the most, not the most unsettling, unconfusing instruction that God has ever given. You've got an army behind, you've got a Red Sea before you, and you're, you're camping there, facing the Red Sea, and God says, go forward. That requires faith. Verse 16, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Do this crazy thing, Moses. Stretch out your, your staff... Point it in the direction that I'm telling you to go forwards and you're going to have a path open up for you in the Red Sea and you're going to march on through. Now that requires faith. Remember, everyone is looking to Moses for, for help here, for guidance. And imagine if Moses didn't really believe that God was going to do this. Is he going to stand up in front of everyone and say, here's the solution. I'm going to raise my, my staff out and we're going to walk through this Red Sea. But the question that Moses and they're asking now is not what we can do, but it's what we should do. What is God asking us to do? Verse 19. 
Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went before them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other or night. What is the first thing that happens when they start doing what they should do instead of what they could do? Who steps in? Jesus does. Remember in the pillar of fire is Jesus. I love this imagery. Jesus moves behind them and Jesus forms himself as, as a divine barrier between their enemy and with them. And when we step out in faith and we step out and we take hold of what we should do instead of what we could do, we find that Jesus steps in and he protects us and he guides us and he, and he forms a barrier around us. Verse 12, 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a war to them on the right hand and on the left. Can you just even imagine this scene? Suddenly this wind blows and a door is opened that no one ever knew ever existed. Suddenly they have a path through the Red Sea, which is a dry path and a clear path with protection behind them from their enemies. And the Israelites begin to walk through the Red Sea. And then what happens, verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, and in the morning watch, the Lord of the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Here we see that when the, the Israelites, when they choose to ask the question, what we should do instead of what they could do, Jesus shows up and does three things. Firstly, Jesus stands before them and protects them from their dangers around them. Secondly, Jesus, Jesus, um, second thing Jesus does is he, he opens up a new doorway to a solution which they never thought was even possible. And thirdly, we see that Jesus, it says the cloud came down and Jesus fights the battle for them. And in our own Red Sea experiences, all of us, I said, in the journey through life, we face trials, we face challenges, we face um, difficulties, whether that be in our relationships, whether that be in our work, whether that be with our our health, whether that be with our finances. All of us from time to time and very frequently find themselves faced with challenges. But when we ask the question what we should do instead of what we could do, we see that Jesus steps in. Jesus fights for us, and Jesus opens up new doorways and new solutions that we never possibly could have thought of. I want to finish up with a quote from The Desire of Ages. It's, I think, one of my favorite quotes, which I think really just summarizes this whole message very concisely. It says, Our Heavenly Father has a thousand ways to provide for us, of which we know nothing. 
those who accept the one principle of making the service and honor of God supreme will find perplexities vanish. Making the service and honor of God supreme. What does that sound like? That sounds like someone who's asking the question, what we would do instead of what we could do. Perplexities will vanish and a plain path will be set before their feet. What would happen if we asked what we should do instead of what we could do? For the Israelites, what would happen? The Red Sea. Victory, deliverance, a new experience with Jesus. What would happen if we asked this question? I guess the result will be discovered as you step into your, as you, into your days and your weeks to come, asking the question what we should do instead of what we could do. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be people who ask the question what we should do and not what we could do. Lord, give us focus, give us fearfulness, give us fearlessness, and Lord, give us faith. Lord, every single person in here has a different set of circumstances, a different set of obstacles that they're facing, Lord. And, and I'm sure many of us here today, Lord, have situations where we feel like the Israelites, army behind us, Red Sea in front of us. What do we do? And Lord, I just pray that you'll help us to seek solutions from you this week. Help us to ask the question, where are you leading us, Lord? And give us the willingness and the submission to follow that leading. Lord, and Lord, we pray that you'll, you'll give us solutions that we never even thought of, Lord. Open our eyes to those thousand solutions that we have not even thought of yet are only beginning of the possible ways that you can sort out our problems, Lord. Help us to remember that with God, all things are possible, just like it was for Israel and just like it is today. Jesus, be with us this week as we enter, as we leave this building, we enter into our communities, we enter into the mission field, Lord, that you've put before us. Help us to be people who are sold out and are completely trusting in you. We pray in Jesus' precious name.